Hey folks, you're listening to To Know the Land, broadcasting from the traditional territories of the Mississauga of the Credit and from 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Or maybe you're listening through uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcast. It's a show about our connections to the land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land, all the while seeking to inspire resilience, resistance, and reverence for the land. Uh, today's show is pretty cool. I get to talk to Heather Wilson um, from the Child and Nature Alliance of Canada. And Heather, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your own connections with the land base? Yeah, it's really great to speak with you today. Um, I'm speaking to you from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe um, in Ottawa. I'm a white settler woman. Um, I'm from uh, the UK um, and I've been a visitor here in Canada for uh, two decades now. Um, and my connection with the land is such a good question. It really intrigued me when, when you sent it um, to me because it's really been something I took uh, yeah, it's something that I had assumed for a long time and hadn't really questioned. Um, I grew up in rural England and my connection to the land was, was kind of immediate and uh, had, you know, really great immersive experiences growing up. Uh, I walked through kind of fields of cows on the way to school and, uh, you know, reflecting on it, it was, it was idyllic, really. Um, and so had always had an assumption that I was with the land, not on the land, if that makes mm, sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it really shifted for me when I came to Canada. And in a way, it felt uh, my connection to the land shifted. And I'm uh, the spouse of uh, um, someone also not from Canada. And so we, there's, a, there's an ideal in Canada, I think, about connection with the land or, or to the land, um, that it has to be expansive and immersive and wilderness-like. And um, we often felt as a family that we were falling short of that. We, we live in an urban environment. Our son um, roams a lot in our immediate neighborhood, um, but did, we didn't always have immediate comfort going out and about um, or seeking out nature in the way that perhaps we have in our minds. And Last year with, with the Child and Nature Alliance of Canada, we held a conference. It was our inaugural Breath of Fresh Air conference. And we invited um, an amazing youth uh, to speak from the States who works with the um, Child and Nature Network, CJ Goulding. And his family is also from Jamaica. That's where my spouse is from. And he was talking about a similar um, feeling that he had being in this work and 
not having had those immersive nature experiences that, that many of us associate or assume with working outdoors, working with nature. And that was a guilt that he carried for a long time. And he said that as he became more familiar with the work that he was doing with youth in nature, in urban environments, in, in different kind of environments and really challenging himself in his work, he came to recognize that his mom always had plants in the house and uh, really tended to those plants lovingly. And he realized that was his connection to nature. And as soon as he said that on the stage, it kind of broke the, the floodgates for me. And I was just, sat, I was sat there in tears because it was, I realized that I had also been carrying that guilt and then also realized my house is also full of plants. <laughs> Um, and, and my partner um, tends to them really lovingly. And, I was, and then I began to realize that's my beginning when I'm here as a visitor in Canada, that's my beginning of, of being connected with nature. Um, so working with the Child and Nature Alliance, my connection with nature may not be immediately what, what folks think. I do love to be out uh, at our forest school sites and out hiking trails but I also take just as much joy and appreciation perhaps a little bit more um, for the nature that I'm able to connect with um, on a daily basis and at the Child and Nature Alliance we've done a lot of work in urban communities particularly in Ottawa um, and we've all come to appreciate, learn and share that nature is everywhere. Um, I, I listened to a really beautiful interview this week with Robin Wall Kimmerer, who wrote the book we all hold so dear, Braiding Sweetgrass. And she's, she said something similar, you know, it's, it's hard, sometimes it's harder to find in an urban environment, but that can make it more special. Um, and uh, we, we just are um, a bit more creative in, uh, in doing that. So I'm not sure if that really answered your question. But. That, it do totally does. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Brampton, Ontario, mm. in a single parent working poor home. And our connection to nature wasn't like Algonquin or Killarney or mm. all these big provincial parks. It was the creek that ran through town the Etobicoke Creek. And that space was the place where I learned the magic of the natural world. And it, it, I like that you mentioned it. It doesn't have to be those, those great big parks and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. In fact, it's, it's, it should be a birthright that everybody right. has access and, and a, a chance to really be with their land base. So I, I really appreciate that that's how you how you see it and how, how it works for you, because that's so important, so mm -hmm. very important. How did you get involved with the Child and Nature Alliance? Um, a few years ago, um, my son attended the Ottawa Forest and Nature School um, as part of the summer camp, and I... Um, was friends with the, the founder of that nature school and the founder of, of Forest School Canada, Marlene Power. And 
really uh, loved the the work that was unfolding there. It was in its early stages, um, but I was in a very different world. I was working in politics actually at the time. And we also then moved back to J Jamaica for a couple of years where my um, husband is from. Uh, and on, upon my return, um, I entered into um, the not back into the nonprofit world and really wasn't enjoying my experience where I was and didn't feel fully connected to the work. Felt that the work I was in at that time wasn't authentic or, or had integrity and um, a position opened up with the Child and Nature Alliance uh, that was in operations and thought that I was a good fit. Didn't speak to anyone about it, but sent my application in and it just was a really good fit. I met with the, with the team and uh, yeah, just our philosophy seemed to align. Um, had a good understanding of, of the approach and pedagogy of, of what uh, CNAP put out into the world in terms of the training and at that time the forest school that they had. Um, yeah, so that's how I became involved with the Child and Nature Alliance. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of like when and how CNAC began? Yeah, so it's always a, a varied story, isn't it, with organisations, but it was um, originally uh, a group of individuals who really wanted to uh, advocate for uh, children's access to, to nature, um, and it was established in BC, um, and uh, Marlene Power, who I mentioned, who had uh, started the Ottawa Forest and Nature School at the time was on the board and saw uh, an opportunity. Uh, the Child and Nature Alliance CNAC didn't yet have any programs that were um, flourishing. And um, Forest School Canada, which was the training arm or program uh, for the practitioners course was emerging um, and the Ottawa Forest and Nature School was also emerging. And the board and, and Marlene saw a unique opportunity for the two organisations to merge. Um, so that happened at the CNAC was established in 2006. And I think the two or maybe 2009, sorry. And the two organisations merged in 2016. Um, and so along the same lines as our pedagogy, the organization has uh, been, the journey has been emergent. Um, when, the, when programs first started, we were offering, I think two, now I know two practitioners courses a year and we had uh, increased that now to around 20 courses a year two staff to 35 staff. So um, it's really it's really grown and uh, yeah, has taken a, a unique path, I would say, in, in its growth. 
think you're the I, I feel like when I when I review Child and Nature Alliance as a website and some of the work that y'all have done and uh, the Breath of Fresh Air uh, conference and, and all these things that you've been a part of for the past few years that I've been following, I see y'all as sort of a, a leader in the field. And I, especially with the courses um, that you're offering on, on uh, forest school sort of training and uh, Actually, could you tell us more about it, the workshops and me trying to tell what the workshops are like? Like, what are they like? How often do these courses happen? And how has it been working with COVID recently? Yes. Um, so I will preface that. Um, we'll probably get to this in a, in a little bit, uh, Byron, because um, I've, I've seen it in your questions. But um, we, always, we do hesitate to say we're a leader in the field. Our model was taken from... Uh, European models of forest and nature school and the training model. Um, so we're not leaders in, in that field. You know more than most that the um, Indigenous peoples and communities of, of Canada have been leading children out um, on the land and, and um, encouraging their relationship with the land for millennia. Um, but in terms of the formal training, um, yes. So we offer our Forest and Nature School Practitioners course. Um, and when we first started, it was our audience for that was mostly um, people who wanted to start their own forest school and or um, educators and practitioners who were involved in forest schools and that movement. Um, and over the last two or three years, what we've started to see are more and more um, ECEs, so early childhood educators and elementary teachers take the course to uh, bring that pedagogy and learning into their um, licensed or more, more formal education settings, which has been wonderful to see. Um, the practitioner's course was <laughs> and is, uh, uh, it used to start in a, with a five-day in-person piece with two of our facilitators and they take place in different regions um, across the country. We do try to connect our facilitators and our practitioners with a course closest to them so it's more, uh, so they feel more connected to their own region and place of being. Um, so it's a five day in-person course and then um, an eight month online mentor program where they dive a bit deeper into the actual pedagogies and practices of the forest and nature school um, approach. Um, so that's our most uh, immersive and expansive offering um, for professional learning. And our workshops are one and two day workshops. We offer um, wilderness first aid, for example, our risky play workshop um, and other kind of smaller introduction to forest and nature school, smaller bite-sized pieces for, for the workshops. And again, we've seen a similar um, trend with, with our audiences with those workshops as well. Uh, COVID 
has presented us with uh, a real challenge like most organizations um, who have been used to delivering things in person. That's always our preferred approach, um, mostly because we um, invite our host organizations in the regions where we hold the, the courses, we work with, with partners to host the courses and they invite the elders or indigenous knowledge holders and keepers into the, the course. So those, those people that they have a relationship with, they invite them into the course to, to give that perspective and to have that presence throughout the course, the in-person piece in particular. So that was something that we really tried to approach with intention um, in navigating how we were going to uh, offer this. Well, first of all, the question was, could we? Can we offer this as an online piece first um, and postpone the in-person piece? How do we replicate some of that uh, immersive experience uh, while still being and, and connection while being online um, and are we going to cause harm in proceeding with the online piece um, and there were some courses where there was a very uh, um, where there were indigenous people attending and we chose to not to move those courses online in consultation with the practitioners and, and the host organizations so we've worked with our, uh, we work with a wonderful elder um, in, in Ottawa, the Ottawa region, um, Annie Smith St. George, and we've worked with her to, to really try and bring in uh, some of those teachings to the online space. Um, and we also have an Indigenous advisory circle and we sought their input uh, and feedback before making a decision to, to bring our practitioners courses online. Um, and we're about to move our risky play workshop online as well through Thrive Outside. Sorry, I just had a problem there. Can you tell us about thriveoutside.ca? Yeah, so um, at the beginning of the, the COVID lockdown, we really took a pause um, and we spent a long time wondering and wondering about what's possible and how we can best serve our community of practice at this time. We, we were very cautious not to react. Um, and move ahead in, in our own best interests as an organization, as a kind of a white settler organization um, in response to the pandemic. We didn't want to move out of fear. So we really were very intentional um, in those first few weeks of March and April to think about how we keep our community center to what we do. Um, which felt at times <laughs> really hard. It, it felt a little bit like we actually had to sit on our hands to, to remain in that space. But what emerged from that was 
the the thinking and the idea and the spark around thrive outside and what we started to hear almost immediately with the lockdown uh, we started to hear from educators hundreds of educators across the country we were really inundated with questions about um, first of all the recognition that everyone's going to be safer outside. Um, I think, you know, all of us felt that way. And we saw that certainly in the media coverage in the early days and since with the pandemic. And a lot of the educators saying, I know that when schools return, outside is going to be, number one, the safest place to be. And number two, it will um, assist with, uh, the children's well-being. How do I get my classroom outside? Um, and a secondary question to that was, how do I get my children outside and still learning? Which is something that uh, the Child and Nature Alliance is uniquely positioned to, uh, to work with educators about because that's the one of the, the focuses of the pedagogy um, and so through Thrive Outside we were luckily enough able to, to secure funding for that project so we could make it a free resource hub for educators and caregivers and we also approached it through that equity lens um, with the knowledge that you know a lot of school settings are urban um, a lot of uh, children and educators, uh, many don't have, uh, or many have voiced that they don't feel comfortable outside and or don't have, you know, huge amounts of equipment. And to be honest, aren't going beyond the parameters of their schoolyards. So how do I use this, what would normally be thought of as a compromised space, to help children uh, be connected with their immediate environment and still learn. And that was, you know, in hearing that from our community um, and new community members, uh, that sparked Thrive Outside and uh, was really the, the motivation for us to, to start working on the, that free resource hub. Um, to be able to get those resources and tools in the hands of educators so they could open the doors up for children to, to be outside more during their school day. And also for parents that aren't familiar with having their children outside for longer, um, you know, help them, help guide them through, through that process. It's a pretty great website and thorough resources. Like in just reviewing it right now, there's a... a a document on risk benefit assessment for outdoor play, frequently asked questions, what to wear when you're working and teaching outside, uh, working with challenging behaviors. And my favorite, which I think I'm gonna send out to all staff at my workplace, is how to set up a tarp. Because <laughs> that, that, that really comes up often. And it's, it's a skill set that even, I, I, I pride myself in as being a budding naturalist and tracker, but I'm looking down all the time. I don't look up. I don't need a tarp, but really I need a tarp and I need to know how to set one up. So it's really important. Those, those basic 
basic skills of, of setting up a space that's more comfortable and more accessible for for all sorts of people, but especially young people. So I, I appreciate this resource. Oh, and that's that's great feedback. Yeah, we we really wanted to approach it without assumption and without shame. <laughs> I find yeah. it difficult to put a tarp up, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, those ba basic things, you know, some people that have worked in, in this space for a while could, could, you know, could view it as basic, but it's not. And it setting something like that, that, that up can really make a difference to, you know, everybody being happy and wanting to spend that extra half hour outside to, you know, to not. So that mm. was, that was great. One of my favorites is um, supporting children with disabilities and exceptionalities outdoors. Mm. Um, yeah. That's a, a podcast that we did. And, and that is, um, you know, we haven't really done much work around that before. Um, so that felt like a, a really great milestone for us and, and something that we are pursuing further as an organization. Again, you're listening to To Know the Land, and we're talking with Heather Wilson from the Child and Nature Alliance of Canada. And like you said, Heather, they've got podcasts on the website. Um, they've got all sorts of resources through the website, childnature.ca and also thriveoutside.ca. And the first thing that really caught my eye, the first thing on the website that I saw uh, was a bit of a land acknowledgement and I would also say like an organizational acknowledgement of what's been going on with the CNAC and where you want to go in the future. I'm going to read a piece of it and then I want to ask you to share your thoughts. So it says, we want to repair our relationships with the indigenous communities and peoples we have harmed. And if they are willing, work towards co-creating trusting, safe and reciprocal relationships with them. From that place of reciprocity, we hope to recreate forest and nature school practitioners course and co-create all future pro programming with indigenous partners across Canada. In doing that, we hope that indigenous and Western worldviews will have equitable voice and space in our programs so that they are safe, meaningful, and culturally relevant for all participants. So you've outlined a lot of the ways that uh, programs have been changing and you're working to make them more inclusive. Are there ways that you see in the future going forward that you would like to expand that inclusion or, or things that y'all are dreaming of that would that would help facilitate uh, the, the more safe, meaningful and culturally relevant programming? Mm, I love that question because it's holding us accountable, <laughs> um, which is something we were very conscious of in, in uh, creating this statement. We, we moved through this statement, um, a culmination of things led to this statement um, and we have been very aware of the the reparations that we've needed to um, move towards in the last few months um, we have uh, as I said earlier in in our conversation uh, an indigenous advisory committee and through our relationship with them we are actually working on a decolonization project for our um, practitioners course materials. As I also said, we've, we've, we've become more and more 
um, aware and conscious of the fact that the practitioner's course as it is was, was brought to Canada from Europe. So it's a white settler model. Um, and in, in some ways has, has caused, and, and as we say in the statement, continues to cause harm. And we are now um, embarking on a three year journey. I think th that sounds silly to say because it will be a continual journey, but to walk toward braiding where the uh, indigenous worldview and Western worldview are both represented within the course and that there's a safe space for indigenous people to be in, in the course and participate fully. And the um, settler, uh, non-indigenous participants really uh, have an opportunity to learn and understand the indigenous worldviews and um, the richness of uh, what that brings to, to the course and that they can take that back to the children and communities that they are working with and within. I think that's a good model for a lot of our, a lot of our programs in schools to, to seek out more indigenous input, have more indigenous uh, folks in positions of power within the organizations to help co-create them and and help guide us further. Because we, we have, like as you've meant, we have these long lasting legacies of European colonization and that's where we're starting from. And so mm -hmm. it's like, working away from that and towards something a lot more equitable and respectful and reciprocal. That's, that's key. Mm -hmm. I appreciate, I appreciate that y'all are doing that work and it's, it's helpful as an organization that I come from when we do that work to see others who are also wrestling with it and finding good ways to move forward. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult and messy and, uh, sometimes doesn't feel great but beautiful things always emerge from that place I find I will say that we were guided through this um through the uh, we use the touchstones of hope as a framework one of our staff members is uh is Métis and is trained in delivering that training um, it's the Touchstones of Hope through the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. And um, it's a really beautiful training. Our work through that training continues. Um, we will never be at the end of, of this journey. And, and we, uh, we really celebrate that. Um, but if anyone, individual or organization is looking to uh, learn more about how they can approach reconciliation and go beyond uh, a statement um, and really get a better understanding of, of their role within reconciliation. I, I can't recommend that training highly enough. It's, uh, it's really great. That's... Working towards reparations and reconciliation um, is a big thing amongst all of our organizations right now. There's it's a lot of work that we need to be doing. And when we think of 
how you know the pandemic has affected certain populations of people, marginalized populations a lot more than maybe well-off white settler folks mm-hmm. who aren't as affected by it. That there's there's just a lot of consideration to be making around COVID nineteen right now, mm-hmm. and uh, as 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 we as we as an organization and as other organizations around uh, North America, Turtle Island, or or probably around the world right now, it takes a lot of consideration for what steps to be taking in light of COVID nineteen, and I was wondering what are steps that the Child Nature Alliance is sort of working towards education for facilitators or instructors or teachers and educators around COVID-19 right now? Yeah, I mean, this has been a pretty incredible year, even on immediate reflection. And when when we think about kind of, when I reflect on all of the strands that are interwoven for CNAC this year, one of them uh, is our approach to serving community in response to the pandemic. Um, Recognizing that we have a role to play as a national organization to raise other voices. and to really um, recommit to our efforts to break down those barriers for priority populations um, and to remove the the guilt and, and sometimes shame for not, as I said at the start of our conversation, kind of quite accessing nature in a way that's expected. Um, As well as the Touchstones of Hope training, we've also moved through um, anti-racist and allyship training that's delivered through the Whiteness at Work program with the Adaway Group. That's uh, an American-based organization uh, with Desiree Adaway. Phenomenal training. Uh, and we resided as a, an organization and team, as a core team, our core team in, in Ottawa. Um, we've resided in the analysis and awareness phase of that for months uh, and are, are moving now towards intentional action um, that we can do as, a, as an organization to support those communities and also invite Uh, or create a safe space um, where those priority populations, folks in those priority populations would feel feel invited in uh, and want to to step into this this work with us. Um, That work is also ongoing. our work with our facilitators is um, not as intense, but we're bringing them into that journey as well. Uh, we just had a uh, our first open call for facilitators across the country, and we removed a lot of the assumed barriers around hiring with that. 
we opened up the process whereby uh, we removed the power of the, you know, white supremacist power of the written word. We made that an option for the application, but also opened it up to um, video submissions, submissions of art, or anything that they felt represented and reflected the love of the work that they do and, and why they, they may want to step into this work with us. And it was actually kind of overwhelming the response we had and to see how that almost immediately opened up those conversations with, um, with people from priority populations. Um, yeah, so the work has only really just begun around that in terms of us uh, being intentional and moving ahead in, in a way that's safe for everybody and, and doesn't cause harm. Um, and removing perfectionism, which is a, a symptom of, of uh, white patriarchal supremacy. So that's been difficult for a lot of us. Uh, we've, been, we've been trained to reside in, in being perfect and having everything uh, aligned before we move forward. But um, we know that we will make mistakes. Um, and we know that the, our work and our learning will, will continue. Uh, and we will always strive to, uh, to be better. Um, my, I say frequently, the organization looks and sounds uh, very different than when I started, then I think that that's, uh, that's a good thing. We, we're inviting more perspectives in, more richness, uh, more worldviews. And I think that our work can only be better through that and children across the country will only benefit. I just want to mention uh, that website that you mentioned as well. Just one more time, whitenessatwork.com. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be sending this out to everybody at work as well, because this looks great. And it seems like a very useful tool for challenging white supremacy at workplaces. And like, not just in sort of nature connection for school models, but around entirely wherever there's white folks at work, this might be a good resource. So I'm going to try and promote that. Thank you for telling me about that. Yeah, I can't recommend that highly enough either. It's, um, it's, it's a great, great resource. One of my last questions or last few uh, for you, Heather, was that the CNAC or CNAC, as you've been naming it, the Child and Nature Alliance of Canada, seems to really help instructors and individual teachers run programs for kids outside. And I was wondering if there was any uh, thoughts into the future of having CNEC offer guidance, support, and instruction for organizations in navigating the accessibility of outdoor program. And I mean that in like in all the ways that that can be interpreted as in like financially, uh, physically offering more resources to organizations as well. And because maybe, maybe the way that I see that y'all are positioned Again, I, I'm not gonna, I'll, I'll correct myself, not as leaders in the field, but as uh, trainers in the field to some capacity for professional training. Mm -hmm. uh, I, wanna, I wanna know, have y'all thought of like branching out towards teaching organizations how to, 
how to run their organization in a context of like zoning bylaws, how to do finances for, for these kinds of organizations. Because this, this is an, not a new field by far, but maybe an old field planted on, on uh, with new technologies, like new laws and new, new mm -hmm. municipalities that we have to sort of navigate while we do this work. Yes. So we're undertaking, uh, with help from the Lawson Foundation currently, a community engagement project that will be a, a few a few years uh, long. But one of the the cornerstones of that project is to really <clears throat> reach out to our community and those working. Uh, in the forest and nature school sector or have been uh, gone through our training or hope to go through our training really to assess what what our community needs um we we don't like to move from assumption but you're right we do get a lot of, of kind of questions in our inbox how do i do this how do uh, how do we set up this so um, yes, we're, we're certainly moving towards developing those resources. We had a great webinar over the summer um, with folks from the legal and insurance industries around how best to navigate the pandemic. Um, we're going back to those folks now to uh, interview them this week, actually, uh, to ask if I'm setting up a program, what do I need to be aware of from an insurance point of view and a legal point of view? Um, so that that work is uh, is definitely emergent and will continue as we hear more from our community or the community of practice. Yes, that's that's great. I mean, so many so many organizations feel like they have to reinvent the wheel or they have to. And I mean, in a lot of ways we do because we're all in different places. We're all in different mm -hmm. municipalities, different provinces. And so the laws are always different and our insurance companies are always different. So navigating these can be very difficult, but having uh, some guidance from folks who've been doing it for a lot longer or maybe have, have, have an understanding of how these things work already is a great way to share and spread the the... the the momentum of these organizations. Mm -hmm. Again, you've been listening to, to Know the Land on 93.3 or on a podcast, and we're talking to Heather Wilson from Child and Nature Alliance of Canada. Heather, is there any last words or any last thoughts that you wanted to, to mention before we close up? Um, I really... Um... You, you sent me a question earlier around any lessons learned from the, the last oh, yes. months yeah. of the, the pandemic and what have we really taken to heart. And again, I think this is this is definitely being interwoven with what we've learned through the, the different worldviews and trainings that we've uh, been on uh, that journey this year and also the pandemic, but really the value of taking pause and to to take that breath and and not to rush <laughs> both as an act of resistance um and also as a as an act of self and organizational care um 
I think that that's probably the the biggest lesson that I have learned and and likely um, I don't often speak for the team but um, I I sense that that's what everybody has uh, has really taken away from from their work with the in the last few months um, and how through doing that we've been able I think and I hope to keep our community center uh, and central to uh, to what we've been doing so I I would say that's the biggest the biggest lesson for me over the last few months of this amazingly <laughs> complex year I appreciate you uh, reminding me of that question I, I I feel like that's a really good that is a really good lesson and something I know that I need to take to heart more. And a lot of us, you know, don't just react. Don't just react. Take the time, feel it out, ask lots of questions, come from a good place before acting and act in a good way reflective of that patience and pause. So, yeah, thank you. Um, Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show and to, to answer all these questions. And I know that with all the work that y'all are doing right now, going forward, I'm gonna be all over your website for the next few years, <laughs> really seeing what y'all are doing and how you're doing it and trying to sign up for anything that comes up in the future to help with uh, the organization I work for and also just to learn more about what, what organizations can be doing across the continent, across the country. So thank you very much for your work. Thanks so much, Byron. And it's been wonderful to connect with you uh, today. And I look forward to connecting with you in the coming months and years. If you could just stay on the line for a second. You've been listening to To Know the Land on 93.3. Uh, if you want to find out more information about the show, you can tune in to to know the land.com uh, check up older broadcast older podcasts the blog you can also email me at to know the land at gmail.com uh, for show ideas suggestions feedback critique and yeah ha have a safe and joyful week <laughs>